and thank you all for being a part of our service so far. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 6 in just a little while and would like for you to also find a place in Acts chapter 2 and put a marker there. Put a bookmark there if you would like to. We'll be reading from that passage at the end of our time. Uh, but Matthew 6, where we'll read in just a few minutes. Um, we've been asking questions to start these conversations off the last couple of weeks. Um, this might be a weird question. Maybe not. Maybe it's a typical preacher question. You'd expect me to ask this kind of question and make you feel bad if you don't think about this. But I, I, I think uh, it'll be a good, good conversation starter today. Do you ever just imagine what heaven is like or will be like? Of course you do, and maybe some of you, not as many, much as others, and some of us have more invested reasons to think about it, but all of us uh, would do well uh, to give thought to what heaven is and what heaven will be like. And, and, and not that this is bad, but I'm not talking about daydreaming about how wonderful it will be there, because it will be wonderful, nothing wrong with that. But I mean, do you ever just sit back and think about what it will be like? Beyond the reunions and the personal wish list of things that we have to do and places to see, you know, one thing I, I don't know, I have no biblical evidence for this being uh, true about heaven, but we make up a lot of things about heaven, so I, I don't think it's wrong for me to make up this about heaven. I hope that there's a movie theater that I can go to and just watch history. That's something I dream about all the time, because I love history, and this is just for me, but you know, everybody talks about seeing family and stuff, and, and I want to, I guess I want to see, I'm just kidding. I, I want to see family too, but you know, when I get to heaven, I want to go to a theater and I want, to, I want to be able to go back to, you know, Genesis 1-1. I want to be able to hit play. And, you know, maybe Peter is doing, the, you know, like when you go to Disney World, there's somebody that is in charge of the ride or whatever and talking you through it. I want to be able to watch from Genesis 1 all the way to now and then be able to see the different pathways. You know, this is how it went in Asia. This is how it went in Europe. This is what happened to the... I want to be able to watch that. I, that might take a long time, but we've got forever. So I might as well, you know, find something to do. Um, I also want to just uh, get, on a, get on some sort of a cosmic thing and just ride through this stars. Um, that's what I want to do. I don't know about y'all, but you know, hey, um, maybe we'll, we'll have, have some options. Um, we've all got our dreams about heaven, our ideas about heaven. Um, most normal people that aren't me would say, well, I want to see family and want to um, meet some of the heroes of the Bible. And, and I want to do that too. So don't, don't think too badly of me. Um, and nothing wrong with all of our different ideas and different dreams, but you know, we're going to be there for a long time. I don't know how long forever is, but it sounds like a long time. Um, so, you know, I, I, sometimes I try to think about what's going to happen after the first two days, because after the first two days and we've shook hands and we've met people and we've, you know, uh, had those, those welcome backs and stuff, um, you know, there's going to be a lot more stuff to do. So I think about that stuff. Um, it's kind of part of my job or part of my calling to think about this kind of stuff. Um, but I know everybody gets excited about thinking about seeing people that you love parents, children, family, friends, and, and that's awesome because nothing will ever separate us from those people again. But do you ever think about how there's going to be a lot of people there? I mean, a whole lot. I don't know the number, but there's going to be a lot of people there. And some of those people, maybe we didn't love them so much when we were here on earth with them. You ever think about that? I mean, we think about going to heaven and being with the people that we love, but think about going to heaven and seeing people that you didn't love so much. You think, well, they won't be there. Well, hey, you know, how do you know? Um, they might be thinking the same thing about you. You know, we, we imagine spending forever with the people that we love, but do you think about spending forever with the people that maybe you didn't love so much? 
I mean, here I am to crush your dreams about heaven, bringing up all this stuff. I mean, hey, you got to think about this stuff. I mean, when you see somebody at Walmart you don't want to see, you can just walk the other way, you know? You can leave. That's what I do. You can come back later. I mean, there's you know, open all day or open all night. Uh, you know, when, when somebody shows up at your house, you can hide in the back room until they leave. But when you get to heaven with people, I mean, it'd be kind of bad taste to run away from them, wouldn't it? Now, I mean, I don't think it's going to look good if we just run away and hide uh, because we're all there for the same reason, right? Now, maybe they won't be so annoying when we get there. Maybe they're thinking you won't be so unfriendly when we get there. I don't know. Um, But this is the kind of stuff I think about when I think about heaven. Now, not what will be different about the world or the place that we live, because plenty will be, but I think about what will be different about me What will be different about us? Because if we're being honest, for a lot of us to want to spend forever with a lot of different people, something may have to change about them, yeah, but some things are going to have to change about us too, aren't they? Now, maybe death or the second coming will change all that, uh, you know, that maybe gets conflicting with others. Maybe when we go to heaven, we'll be different. I think we will be. The Bible says that. Uh, But are we really supposed to have this attitude that, well, when I get to heaven, I'll like people. When I get to heaven, I'll get along with them. When I get to heaven, God will fix the thing about me and the thing about them that makes us not get along here. But when we get there, he'll fix that. Should Christians really have that kind of attitude? Now, maybe you do, but should we? I've had that attitude for a long time and God's been kind of telling me, I don't know if that's okay, Justin. Because when we think about heaven, I think about what it's really about and who it's really about. It it sort of makes me look around and wonder, shouldn't now, shouldn't now be more in line with and influenced by what's next? I mean, shouldn't the way that we act, the way that we live, the things that we do, the attitude that we have, if we're going to have it there, shouldn't we go ahead and adopt it to our, the best of our ability now? I mean, maybe we'll get there and we'll shake hands with Jesus and we'll take off to a subdivision named after our family and he'll show up once a week and give us milk and honey and, and, and maybe he'll leave us alone and we won't ever see anybody that we aren't related to or aren't friends with. And maybe we'll only have to mingle with each other on Christmas and Easter. I don't know. But, and, and you laugh, but that's how we imagine it, isn't it? We have a row with our names on it, and we all have houses, and we don't ever have to see anybody else. But when you say that out loud, it, it kind of doesn't sound like heaven, does it? It kind of just sounds like normal life without work and without 99% of the people. And something just doesn't sit right with that idea of heaven, does it? At least not to me. Could it be that we've missed the point? when we think about heaven? Could it be that our vision for what heaven will be like or what heaven is like may be off because something isn't as it should be on earth? Could it be? Now, we're in the middle of a series called Inevitable, which takes inspiration from and that we kicked off with looking at John 17 a few weeks ago. John 17, if you were with us, is the time where Jesus stayed up all night long praying for something, praying about something. Now, maybe you've been up all night long before because you were sick, because you were excited, but a lot of us, we stay up all night when we're worried or concerned. Jesus was up all night, even though he was God and he was in charge and confident of his plans, he was gravely concerned about something. The night before, of it, before his death, where he would sacrifice himself for the sins of the world and kick off the church. The night before he would purchase all that would come to him with his blood. 
Before dying for the church, Jesus laid awake, concerned about the church, about its immediate and long-term health. Not what his death, not that his death wouldn't be sufficient in saving, not that his resurrection wouldn't be efficient in empowering, but he knew that the enemy would work to stir up the nature within us all would work hard against his people and his movement. He knew the devil would take advantage of God's patience and grace, and he would stir up the sinful nature in his people and try his best to destroy his work. So Jesus laid awake all night long and consecrating his followers and would-be followers with his prayer. Now we've looked at this, these verses each week and I wanna show you these once more because this is what Jesus prayed. That they may all be one, just as you Father are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. If you haven't memorized that yet, maybe after a couple more weeks, we'll get it down. Jesus prayed that we might be one, that we might find unity so that the world might believe that he was sent by God and that the glory that you have given me, I have given them. So that the glory that God gave Jesus, that we might could receive that same presence, that same power and be filled with the full measure of God. So Jesus, the reason why he's staying up all night, the reason why he's praying about this, the reason why we're talking about this is Jesus said that division is inevitable, but unity is possible and it's necessary. It's necessary for us reaching our full potential and for the world hearing about the gospel. So years later, as the church got off the ground, the leader of the movement was a man named Paul. We know him as the Apostle Paul. He was the head guy in terms of expansion and evangelism. For 30 years, as the church got off the ground, Paul planted churches. He spread the gospel. He would spend months and years going around the Mediterranean Sea from Syria, Turkey, Greece, and Rome. He believed in the power of the Holy Spirit to save sinners, to fill hearts, and unite them together in the local church. He also knew that our sinful nature would work relentlessly to divide us and to stunt and stop the movement of God. So if you read Paul's preaching on the record in Acts, if you read his letters in the New Testament, you can hear the words of Jesus in him from John 17. You can hear this uh, inspiration and this influence from John 17 as Paul preached and planted churches. In Ephesians, we spent time last week looking at chapters three and four, Paul literally records a similar prayer. And then he goes on to outline how we might overcome division and achieve and maintain unity. We covered this last week, but Paul lays out four virtues that are a must if we are to truly pursue unity. We talked about humility, kindness, patience, and love. And Paul says, if we do our part in our families, in our churches, in our communities, Paul makes it clear that it is inevitable that we encounter division in our relationships and in our, in our circumstances that will challenge and frustrate our desire to be humble, kind, patient, and loving. But this, and, and he says that it will always be our natural response to be kind and patient and loving and humble. But he stresses, if we are going to be full of the glory of God, the presence and power of God, if God is going to share with us his full presence and his full power, we must do our share of pursuing unity. 
pretty clear if you were here with us last week. And if you weren't, I would encourage you to read Ephesians 3 and 4. Paul makes it pretty, pretty clear to us. Uh, Ephesians 4 ends with some real talk from Paul. He says, I know there are going to be people in environments where you think there's no use in being humble, no use in being kind, no use in being patient, no use in being loving. It's doing no good. I'm getting walked on as a result, actually. Uh, there will be times when you think nobody here deserves that from me. Can you relate to that? Nobody here deserves patience from me. No one deserves love from me, kindness, or uh, uh, humility from me. And if we're being honest, I want to show them the opposite of those things because that's what they deserve. Paul says, Christians, remember your name. Remember your namesake. How did you get here? How did you become a Christian? Because God forgave you Jesus embodied those virtues without regret or spite because he lived from and acted with a forgiving spirit. And his spirit, his unifying spirit, is a forgiving spirit. Jesus chose forgiveness. He chose humility, kindness, patience, and love. And as a result, we can be united with him. And from there, our mandate is to forgive as Christ forgave us. No exceptions. If we do this, big if, then we will always lead with humility, kindness, patience, and love. That if we are forgiving people, our first response will be, how can I be humble, kind, patient, and love? And we won't question it. We won't second guess it. We won't think, well, is this really what I should do? Because it's not about what they deserve. It's about how God didn't give us what we deserved. Now, at first, when we hear this call to unity from God's word, we think it's a fool's quest. We think it's a pipe dream. We think it's impossible because division's inevitable. Division seems like too powerful of a force. And in some aspects, we think that it's necessary. How can we possibly overcome it? And maybe you hear Jesus' call to unity, you hear Paul's call to unity, and you think to yourself, that's just asking too much, Justin. That's unrealistic. That's just making me feel bad about things that I shouldn't even have to feel bad about. It's making me feel responsible for things that I should not feel responsible for. Are you telling me that the division in my family, the division in my church, the division in my community, the division in my country that I had nothing to do with, you're telling me that that's my responsibility to try to solve? I mean... Are we supposed to believe that even though division is inevitable, that unity is still an imperative over all of us? I mean, set the whole, we won't experience the full volume of God aside if we don't choose unity. Are we going to be held accountable if we don't choose and pursue unity? Are we somehow out of God's will if we uphold division? Is it bad to suppose that it's not our responsibility to overcome it? And if the answer is yes to those questions, it is our responsibility. We will be held accountable. I mean, is that even fair? We live on planet Earth, a fallen, sinful, broken planet full of people who are different and na by nature divisive. And we're held responsible to tr resolve it from as much as we can? I mean, where does Jesus, where does Paul think we live? And anybody that expects unity from me, where do they think we are? Heaven? Well, to help us sort through this, today we're going to look at yet another prayer. We've looked at a prayer of Jesus. We've looked at a prayer of Paul. Today I want us to look at a prayer that we've all prayed many more times than we can count. 
This prayer, of course, commonly called the Lord's Prayer, but it's really the disciples' prayer. It's a template Jesus gave his disciples to follow and format their prayer lives around. We did a whole series on this prayer earlier this year, but I want to look at a part that we did not discuss then and maybe is the least discussed part of this prayer. It's in this prayer, in this single line of the prayer, that we find yet another clue about pursuing unity and achieving unity. Let's start with the preface of this prayer, Matthew 6, verse 5 through 8. Jesus is going to introduce this template to us, and he's going to warn us that we not miss the point and not miss the power of prayer. He says in chapter 6, verse 5, When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues on the corners of the street, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you've shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things that you need before you ask him. He says, therefore, in this manner, I want you to pray. So Jesus makes it it clear about what prayer is about here. Prayer is about uniting our lives to God's will. It's not about filling a quota, not some religious obligation, not about getting God to do what we want him to do. Prayer is an opportunity to become one with God. That's a pretty awesome opportunity, isn't it? It's an opportunity to see his will realized in our lives. When it seems like his will is way out of reach, prayer is a way to get his will and make it possible in our lives through his help. Prayer is a weapon against the enemy who tries to convince us that realizing God's will is impossible. So this template is so important that we take it and personally adopt it and take every line seriously and sacredly. Jesus doesn't want prayer, our greatest ally, to become a lifeless routine when it has the potential to change our lives in incredible ways. But here's the big qualifier for this prayer in any prayer. Prayer will never change our life if it hasn't first changed your mind. That if you just pray something as routine, it's not gonna change your life if it hasn't sunk into your mind and hasn't made, you haven't made a decision in your mind, this is what I want, this is what God wants, I'm gonna pursue it with all I have and all, I, all my heart. If we pray for something that's not personal, it's not important, it's not serious, what are we even doing? We're just peddling some vestigial of religion and what good does that do anybody? It actually hurts us because it numbs our connection to God. It works against the purpose of prayer to make us one with God. And I want you to consider, how many times have you prayed the prayer in front of you? Maybe 300 times isn't a stretch for most of us. And if you grew up in a church where you repeated this regularly, thousands of times maybe for you. And maybe you've prayed this prayer daily in your devotions. You you maybe have prayed this prayer more than you've done anything else in your life. When we think of the Lord's Prayer, I don't think we have any trouble uh, uh, meaning the part about asking God for provisions, asking Him for forgiveness, asking Him to lead us in the right direction. But I wonder how many times we have prayed this first part and really meant it. And could it be? The reason why we have never really meant it is because we've never really understood it. Jesus says, this is how you should start your prayers. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. 
You ever thought about what it means for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done? We've prayed that line hundreds, thousands of times, and I wonder if we ever pause to think about the gravity behind what we're saying, what it would mean for that truly to come to pass. That we're, we're giving, we're basically saying, God, my guard is down, I'm stepping out of the way, and I'm asking that your reign would be established, that your will would be accomplished through my life. Do you know how serious that is to pray that line? And imagine how flippant and how casual we utter it. So many times we prayed this and I've got to wonder how many times have we actually meant it? Have we ever really pursued God's reign and God's will? Maybe we don't because God's will seems too idealistic for this world. Maybe a reality where things are as God says they should be seems impossible and the thought of pursuing it just seems silly. Maybe you wish it could happen, you'd love for it to happen, but you live in the real world and it's not gonna happen. You hear, we've, hear, we've heard loud and clear from God's word the last two weeks that God's will for us as his children, God's will for us as a child of his, as a part of his church is that we choose unity. I mean, Jesus set up all night long praying for this. Paul prayed for this in the, the book of Ephesians. Jesus and Paul make it very clear. God's will for us is that we would choose unity. And if God's kingdom is gonna be established, it has to be established on the principle of unity. He prays that we would work towards unity to be humble, kind, patient, and loving Look at that very important qualifier. As much as and as often as it takes to achieve unity. You, people say, what is God's will for me? This is his will for you. I know it's general, it's not specific, and he has specific things for you, and I know we'll get to that, but this is his general will for every Christian, that you choose unity. And if we're not doing this, we might, not, might as well not even worry about the other stuff that we want as an addition. Because this is what he expects from every one of us that we choose unity and that we be humble and kind, patient and loving as much as and as often as it takes. What if we never get there? As much as and as often as, what if I do it every day and it doesn't make it, as often as, as much as. What if we all prioritize reconciliation like God does. That's what forgiveness is about, isn't it? I mean, isn't Christianity about God and sinner being reconciled? I mean, I gotta ask the question, if God and sinner can be reconciled, why can't sinner and sinner? Well, I got a lot of reasons why sinner and sinner can't be reconciled, Justin. Do you know them? Do you know what they've done? I mean, there's no reconciliation. I mean, that's an excuse, yeah? Did God allow any excuse to get in between you and him in terms of reconciliation? We give up so easily, don't we? Which reveals maybe we just don't really want his will. And maybe we really aren't pursuing his reign because we really aren't pursuing unity, if we're being honest. Our excuse is, well, this is the real world, Justin. Not some ideal fantasy land. This is not heaven. That'll happen when we die. The rapture will fix that about us. Yet aren't we instructed to pray 
Your kingdom come, your will be done. And what does that next line say? On earth. So not when we die. Not in a perfect world that will never happen. On earth. Come on, let's say it together. As it is in heaven. Ah, ha, ha. That's the fantasy land that you were trying to get us to think was a reality that's possible for this earth, Justin. It's just not. But what does Jesus say? We are commanded to pray on earth as it is in heaven. You know what that line is a confession of? That God's will made real in our lives seems too idealistic and unbelievable. But if it can and has been realized in heaven, then it is achievable. Now, I know, I agree with you. That doesn't make sense. Well, why, you know, it's possible there, but not possible here. But Jesus says it is. I mean, there's no asterisk to this verse. There's no, we'll read the footnote. He's not really being serious here. He's just wanting you to pretend like you want it, but he's okay with it not. I don't think that's how it works, do you? The Bible says heaven's spirit has filled our hearts. The Bible says that heaven's spirit has organized the church. Therefore, nothing is impossible to those that believe, especially, most importantly, when it comes to our relationships in our personal lives. Maybe unity, reconciliation, and peace sounds too ideal to you, sounds too heavenly to you. And could it be we've settled for division and embraced division that we kind of roll our eyes about this reality about heaven because it doesn't seem so ideal to us if we're being honest. And when we think about heaven, we don't wax, we don't wax lyrical about peace and unity. That's not really on our, first, on our list of things we think about when we think about heaven. But what do we do with this line? How can we continue to pray this line again and again and not come to terms with our responsibility to pursue unity? Our responsibility to usher in and as it is in heaven reality. That's on every one of our shoulders. As it is in heaven. Let's talk about heaven for just a minute. Why unity is at the heart of the kingdom of God. The Bible gives us plenty of insight about heaven. It gives us windows into heaven. The first thing that stands out about heaven, anytime it's mentioned in the Bible, the one thing that is front and center is worship. Because there is one person at the front and center of every picture and conversation about heaven. Everybody in heaven has one passion. Everyone in heaven is united around one passion and one purpose, worshiping God. That's why there's unity there. Everyone in heaven is united around God as being the one and only reason that we're there, the reason we exist, the reason and the source of our life and our joy. It's from him, it's for him, it's unto him that all things exist. Therefore, above everything else, heaven is about worship. That's why there's unity. Isaiah chapter six, verse three, the Bible says, the, the, the angels call to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth, not just certain corners of it, not just certain days of it, certain countries of it. It's all his. Now, nobody else is in heaven at this point, but the angels, 
And the only people that are there, the only creatures that are there are worshiping constantly. Revelation gives us a look at heaven and the future and the past for us and the present for us and even still the future. Listen to Revelations 4 verse 8. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say or sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That it's all about him. And the reason why we do nothing but worship is because it's not about us. This song's not about me or you or anybody else. It's about God. Revelations says that we're step, this is what we're stepping into when we get to heaven. It's not a resort. It's not a reunion. It's a royal throne room that reaches the ends of the universe that exists to glorify and exalt God. And here's where we come in. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, by the way, the 24 elders, in this point in Revelation, the 24 elders are a picture of all of humanity. Everybody that gets there. Jew, Gentile, church, whatever, you know, belief in Jesus. And look at what it says. When the living creatures, the angelic creatures, when they're done singing, here comes the people. They cast their crowns as in, we got here, we're thankful to be here, but this is not about us. They cast their crowns. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. By your will they exist and for you they were created. Every person with their accomplishments and works falls in front of him as nothing in his sight, unified around his splendor. We see a similar scene in Revelations 5 because this is it's trying to get the point across. This is what we do in heaven. Then I looked and heard around the throne, the living creatures and elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What? I heard every creature in heaven and even those that weren't. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. So what is eternity all about? It's about being united around one purpose. Glorifying the God who is worthy of our praise. The four living creatures said amen as in that should be the let it be so. And the elders, the people, fell down and worshiped. They just got up and they got back down because this is why we are there. This isn't just one day, it's every day. When everybody is focused on God, guess what? We aren't focused on ourselves and guess what? We see how silly, how childish it is, how sinful it is to allow anything to divide us because our division diminishes worship. It withholds from God what he deserves, a united voice of worship. Another thing about heaven, everybody in heaven has one identity. One identity. 
belonging to Jesus. There's no last names. There's no this nation and that nation. No this generation, that generation. No division by race. No division by family. No division by all the things that we think about. Revelation says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe, every nation, every tribe, all peoples, all languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. Because we share him. We share an identity. Think about all the things that divide us here on earth. What if we brought that heavenly unity to our earthly lives? Does that mean we might would lay aside some of our earthly identities? Maybe. Would it hurt? These different people, which are a part of many differences, unify around their shared God. Last thing about heaven and unity. Everybody in heaven has one home. Dwelling with God. Revelation is 21, you should read the whole chapter. But I heard a loud voice. Notice every voice is loud in heaven. You ever pick up on that? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. It's one big family. This is the ultimate fulfillment of our prayer in Matthew 6. Let, let me ask you this. Is this what you're looking forward to? When heaven comes to earth, when our kingdoms pass away, when our dreams, our plans, our current reality fades away, and finally, once and for all, God's kingdom will be fully and finally established. You say, well, I mean, don't we all, isn't heaven big? Don't we all kind of just wander into the same, into our different corners? I don't know about that. You know, we all love John 14, verse 2. In my father's house are many mansions. And we rush past the father's house part and we go to the mansion part. But if mansion is literal, why isn't father's house literal? You see what I'm saying? That if mansion is a real house, then what do we do with the father's house? That's not some spiritual metaphor, is it? That means there's a big house. There's a big house and we all live in it together. And maybe the room that you have is the size of a mansion compared to earth. I don't know. But we are going to live in the father's house because you know what? As a parent, don't you love when all your kids come over and are in the same place? Isn't it true that you, grandparents, parents, you love when all your kids come over and you get to see them all in one place. You hate when they leave. Do you think the father's going to build a, <laughs> going to put us all in little corners and little homes? No. We are going to dwell together because, because in heaven, we are unified with one passion, one identity, and one home. These heavenly realities wherein we are unified, they might seem too idealistic for us right now, but they shouldn't be. They are absolutely achievable in whatever earthly way we can implement them so that it may be on earth as it is in heaven. Division may be inevitable, unavoidable, 
But in heaven, unity is the gold standard and the only option. And if we are praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, shouldn't we be becoming more united and more unified with our brother and sister? Not that all of our differences are less pressing, not that there aren't frustrations, but if we are anticipating heaven, shouldn't we be following that mandate? How can we, and this is where we close, how can we begin working towards this in our current reality? How can we begin seeking God's ideal while yet enduring what's real and what feels inevitable to cause division? What are some as it is in steps that we can take to bring as much as heaven to earth as possible? As possible. Choices we can make and steps we can take as members of greater bodies, our families, our churches, our communities, in light of our shared passion, identity, and future home, you know, we don't need to look too far to see what it looks like when the local church seeks to be an as-it-is-in-heaven movement. The New Testament church, the church in Acts, embodies this. They prioritize this. When they felt like something was getting in the way, they doubled down on what I'll call an as-it-is-in-heaven living, because I wanted to make it sound, sound enough, similar enough for you to memorize. As-it-is-in-heaven living. I want to talk about what that looks like before we close. Now, they didn't get this without, without seeking it and pursuing it. They did it knowing it would stretch them from their comfort zone, that it would challenge them, their preconceived notions and expectations. The book of Acts ends this way with a powerful summary verse about what encapsulated the 30 years that are on the record. Acts 28, verse 31, it says, they proclaimed the kingdom of God and they were teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. They would not let anything get in the way of proclaiming the kingdom and ushering in the kingdom to the best of their ability. Perhaps the most bold they ever were wasn't facing the enemy or challenges, but it was when they were persistent about pursuing unity. We could use a little bit of that boldness, couldn't we? In our efforts to bring a little heaven to earth. Boldness meets trials with incredible faith. Boldness confronts the real world with ideal truth. Boldness faces impossibility with the power of prayer. The early church prayed for boldness that God might make them bold towards outsiders and insiders, that God might keep them in the condition in which he forged them. The church, if you'll remember, it was forged, it was baptized with the spirit of God in the upper room. Those that were in that room were in one accord. They were in one spirit. They were united and because of their boldness, they refused to let anything sever that bond. I want you to listen in closing uh, to Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4. You can look there with me if you'd like to. And I'd love for you to, to, to read these passages and even highlight, underline some words that you see that are repeated. But Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. I'll read that first. This is the early church. And I want you to pick up on some things, if you will. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers. Fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods, divided them among all as anyone had a need. They continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to that church, to the church daily, 
those who are being saved. Over in chapter 4, verse 32 through 37, you'll hear some similar things, but I think this is repeated to get our attention even more. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that anything they possessed was his own. They all had things in common. With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone there that lacked for all who, had, all who were possessors of land or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and distributed them to each as anyone had need. Did you pick up on some themes there? We, we, we read the word one a lot, the word common a lot, the word sold a lot, the word distributed and shared a lot. What came over these people? They never let anything get in the way of their heavenly passion. They were driven and pursued worshiping God. Worshiping God meant gathering as one with one voice. They were well aware of their heavenly identity. They relished knowing they were members of one family. They dwelled together looking forward to their heavenly home, knowing that it was just a preview of what was next. This is why the early church is a picture of unity because they prayed those words, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They meant it and they lived it out. They boldly pursued unity, devoted to their one passion, joined together in their one identity, looking forward to their one home. Maybe this idealistic reality isn't so unrealistic after all. Maybe it's not so impossible. Maybe it begins with me and you choosing, pursuing, and praying and moving towards unity. Maybe it begins when we decide to abide by and live by these simple words, as it is in heaven. What if we prayed those words? What if we meant those words? What if we lived by those words? We know what heaven is like. We've read what the church was like when this is their mission statement. What is keeping us from adopting this in our families, in our churches, in our communities? Maybe today is the day we pray for boldness. Maybe today is the day we allow God to strengthen his kingdom presence here on earth through our lives, through our families, through our church. What do you have to lose? A little bit of earth? And what do we have to gain? A whole lot of heaven. Why accept the world as it is when it can be? Say it with me. As it is in heaven. This possibility, this reality lives and dies by our pursuit of unity. Maybe that's why it's been dead in a lot of ways. Because we haven't been so bold to choose unity when the world says, that's crazy. When it actually is just Christian. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into heaven, first and foremost. God, won't it be wonderful when we all get to go to heaven and we all get to join into that worship service where the lamb who was slain, who was and is and is to come is center of everything. And we are just enamored in his presence and we are gathered in that amazing throne room. 
God, it's so awesome to know that our identity is not, it doesn't matter who we are or what we've done, but it matters that we're yours. And God, looking forward to being together in one home with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, many that we have never and will never meet until we get there. That's awesome. We're so thankful for that, God. And God, we hear about what heaven is like and we read in the prayer that you gave us to pray that we should pray for it to be on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, help us not to be discouraged by what's real so as to not believe that the ideal can come to earth. There may be limits to it. There may be things that will frustrate it. I understand that, but you are in control of all this. God, would you help us adopt this as it is in heaven lifestyle? Would you help us to adopt that one passion, that one identity, that one future home, and let that drive us and inspire us to choose unity always to the point that we see each other in our local church and we see an opportunity to build something that will send a message to the world that this is just a picture of what heaven offers everybody. Lord, maybe somebody here today and they hear this about heaven, they hear this invitation to be one in Christ and to be saved and they wanna take up the opportunity. They wanna join your church, they wanna join your family. Would you bring that person to that place of acceptance today? For everybody else, would you bring us to a place of surrender and that place of being in awe of who you are and what you're inviting us into? And may we not let anything get in the way of making this our priority. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.